Let's turn in our let's turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis. And why don't we all stand? The mind cannot grasp what the posterior cannot endure. So let's all stand and stretch a bit. And uh, hey, those of you that are interested in going with us to Israel, uh, we've got some dates, some tentative dates, uh, May the 4th through the 13th. So you might want to put that down your calendar. We'll be uh, clarifying those in the next few weeks. And, uh, but that looks like that might be our, our upcoming trip. We're real excited about that. But we've got Haiti first, don't we, Charles? Got Haiti. Got Haiti this week. And I do appreciate all your prayers and just being behind us and praying for us means so much. And we would really uh, appreciate that this coming week. Anything else? James, anything else that uh, I need to announce tonight? Men's Huddle Wednesday night. Man, how could I forget? Men's Huddle this Wednesday night. We have a great time. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We ask that you bless our Bible study now as we go through your word. May it go through us and cleanse us, Lord, and encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Recently, I read where the peak age for physical attractiveness is 38 years old. 38 years old. Peak age. But of course, beauty is only in the eye of the beholder. And according to the AARP, the American Association for Retired People, the older a person gets, the older the best looking age becomes. In fact, people under the age of 35 say that 30 years old is the age of peak physical attractiveness. Whereas people over the age of 65 say that the best looking age is 46 years old. And that's why when I go to the old folks home and I walk down the hallways, all the old ladies whistle at me. Because I'm 46. Of course, it could be that the older a person gets, the worse their vision becomes. And that's why the older people view peak physical attractiveness at older ages. But apparently, older eyes do develop a taste for older appearances. Well, the book of Genesis tells us that when Sarah was 65 years old, Abraham considered her a knockout. A real beauty queen. When she reached the age of 90, his opinion hadn't changed. Sarah would have won the Miss Social Security beauty pageant, hands down. Evidently, the Pharaoh in Egypt and Abimelech of the Philistines agreed with Abraham's assessment. They both wanted to add Sarah, remember, to their harem. Commentator Henry Morris, he offers an explanation for Sarah's ageless beauty. Since she was post-menopause, for her body to birth and bear and nurse a child, God had to do one of those extreme makeovers on Sarah. He had to rejuvenate her whole body. And perhaps the renewal affected not only her internally, but it also affected her externally. It even restored her beauty. Whatever the reason, Sarah remained attractive long past what many women consider their prime. I'm sure at least to Abraham, Sarah was as pretty the day he buried her as she was the day he married her, which really brings us to Genesis chapter 23, the burial, the grieving over Sarah. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. There is only one woman in the Bible whose age is mentioned at the time of her death, and it's right here, Sarah. Sarah was 127 when she died. You know, women fear that when people know how old they are, it will diminish their attractiveness. Apparently, Sarah was still beautiful, or at least according to Abraham, she was. He made her feel that way, and so she had nothing to fear. So Sarah died in Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, if you think Abraham's test in chapter 22 was difficult, his loss here may have proved even a greater challenge. It would have been heartbreaking to lose a child, no doubt, if it had happened. Abraham would have been able to come home, though, and fall into the arms of his wife. And the two of them could have grieved together. But now Sarah is dead, and there is no shoulder for him to cry on. His lifelong companion is gone, and Abraham mourns for Sarah. He weeps for her. And here is the first mention, by the way, of tears or weeping in all of the Bible. I'm sure there was weeping at the fall of man, at the death of Abel, at the judgment at the flood, at the breakup at Babel. But that detail isn't included in those accounts. God waits until a man of faith loses a submissive wife to the clutches of death. And then he says that Abraham mourned and wept. You know, this is an experience that if the Lord tarries, many of us will one day share. God is saying that when it happens, it's proper to grieve. Even for a person of faith, He wants us to cry and weep and get out our grief when we endure such a loss. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Hath, saying, I am a foreigner and a sojourner among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The land Abraham is about to buy, understand, he already owns. In chapter 15, God marked out the boundaries of the land that he had given to Abraham. And the burial plot in Hebron was certainly a part of that allotment. But Abraham, notice, calls himself a foreigner and a sojourner. He was a stranger in this world. And it was not because of a lack of faith. No, his words here are a renunciation of this world. God had given Abraham a real inheritance, not on the earth, but a home in heaven. This earth was no longer attractive to Abraham. He was looking for a heavenly home. He was looking for a home out of this world. I'm looking for a home like that too. I hope you are. And that's why he says that he wants to bury Sarah out of my sight. I think that's an interesting phrase. Now I hope no one misunderstands what I'm about to say. We've already said and seen that it was proper for Abraham to grieve over Sarah and to honor her at her death. But there comes a point when you need to put your Sarah out of your sight. In other words, you've got to move on. There is a grieving that honors the life of a person who has lived, who honors the life they've lived. But there is an obsessive and a prolonged grieving that dishonors the eternal life that that person has inherited. You see, if I keep looking at and focusing on the corpse of my Sarah, if I keep focusing on her, what she was on the earth, I'm not giving credence to the eternal life that she's now inherited. Guys, you don't lose someone when you know where they are. Abraham wants to honor Sarah's memory, but he knows that Sarah is more than a memory. She is in heaven, and he looks forward to meeting her again in the life to come. And that's why he wants to bury her out of his sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham took, stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. The rabbis interpreted the word Machpelah to mean double doors. It probably meant that the cave had two entrances, literally, but also spiritually. Reminds me of a great quote by Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite Bible expositors. He said, death is but a passage. It's only a vestibule. The grave has a door on its inner side. 
The grave of every Christian is a makpelah. It has double doors. The door of death might lead into it, but there is a door out of it that leads to eternity with Jesus Christ. Verse 10, Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. <laughs> now, you've got to understand this in its Oriental Middle Eastern context. Ephron, like all Middle Eastern merchants, was a haggler. He's not about to give anything to anybody for free. This is just a starting place, sort of the customary starting point for negotiations. You know, somebody says he offers it to you for free, and then you come back with your price. That's how it works. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Oh, what is that between you and me? So bury your dead. Now you see what's going on here. I'll give it to you for free. And Abraham says, no, I, I, I'll pay you for it. What do you want for it? Well, how about 400 shekels? That was probably his highball offer, you know. And he's probably expecting Abraham to now come back and try to Jew him down, literally, you know. But Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Ephron expected Abraham to haggle. But instead, he goes ahead and he pays the asking price. And I think there's a lesson for us here. We always want the best price, but Abraham paid a fair price. He was honest in his dealings. I think the lesson for us is don't be a cheapskate. Give a man a fair price when it's asked for. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. It's interesting, not only was Sarah buried in the cave of Machpelah, but we'll learn later that so were Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah and Jacob. It became a family burial plot. Genesis chapter 24 is an intriguing, it's an exciting chapter. Not only because of the story that it tells, but because of the story's implications. In the Bible, you'll find that many of the New Testament writers will refer to Old Testament stories and treat them allegorically. The Old Testament is certainly history, understand. But in places, it becomes larger than life. It becomes bigger than history. There is a spiritual lesson intertwined with the historical record. And there is no more vivid example of that than right here. Chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. This was an oriental way of taking an oath. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. You know, it would have been to Abraham's benefit if Isaac had married a local girl. I mean, the political alliance that would have ensued would have strengthened Abraham's position in the land. It probably would have benefited him materially too. But Abraham forfeits any kind of temporal motive for the assurance that his son will marry a believer. He couldn't bear the thought 
of Isaac wedded to an idolatrous Canaanite. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to come to me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Abraham didn't want to risk Isaac getting entangled in the affairs of Haran and miss out on God's promise in the land that he had given Abraham and his family. And so Eliezer has the challenge of finding Isaac a wife who is willing to walk by faith, who's willing to pledge herself to a man that she has never seen. Take note of that. Verse 9, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. This is what he's going to use to entice a bride. He was allowed to give away his master's blessings to the woman. Now hopefully you're starting to see an allegorical meaning take shape. Remember chapter 24. It comes on the heels of Genesis chapter 22. And you remember what happened there. There Isaac offered, or Abraham offered Isaac up as a sacrifice. That episode, we talked about it, was prophetic of a future father who would sacrifice his only son on that exact same spot some 2,000 years later on Mount Moriah. God painted a picture. God the Father would later sacrifice his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, on that very same mountain where Abraham had offered up his son, Isaac. But the allegory doesn't end in chapter 22. Here, Abraham sends out a servant to find a bride for his son. And though this servant is unnamed in this chapter, we can go back to chapter 15 and verse 2, and there we find that his name was Eleazar, which, by the way, means comforter. Now, this is the New Testament story. After Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, He ascended into heaven, and what happened? He sent the Holy Spirit, our comforter, He called Him, out into a foreign land, this world, to do what? To look for a bride for His Son. To call out from among the world, people who would become God's church, who would become the bride of Christ. And by the way, he's looking for people who will walk by faith. He's looking for people who will pledge themselves to a man that they have never seen. Some amazing parallels. And how does the Holy Spirit entice us? Well, the way Eleazar wooed Isaac's bride. The master's goods are in his hands. As Paul said to the Ephesians, the Spirit offers us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 10 continues. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Now what Eleazar does next is to ask for some supernatural guidance. And he plots a scenario hoping that God will cooperate. He says, then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now trust me, for one woman to volunteer to water ten camels would have taken nothing less than a miracle from God. One camel drinks five gallons of water at a time. 
That means that this gal would have had to bail 50 gallons of water. My wife loves me. But I'm glad she didn't have to bail 50 gallons of water to prove it. We might have never gotten married. Be careful when you concoct a plan and ask God to bless it as Eleazar is doing here. God is obligated to do His will, not necessarily abide by our plans. Here, though, God has mercy and He cooperates with Eleazar. Verse 15. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. It's interesting that when the Spirit went out to draw a bride to Christ, the first Gentile convert that followed Jesus was a woman that Jesus met by a well. The well in Samaria, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And I'm sure Eleazar got pretty excited at that point. I found her. I got the right gal with 50 gallons of water. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her remained silent, so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. You see, there's only one step left. She has to accept his proposal. And the same is true for us. The Spirit of God can find us and woo us and draw us to Christ. But we have to agree to the proposal, don't we? We have to agree to follow Jesus. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing, weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? I used to think that was strange that a young girl would find a nose ring appealing, but not anymore. <laughs> so she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcal's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and he worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. You see, Abraham wanted a bride for his son from his own people. And when Rebekah identified herself as Abraham's niece... Eleazar knew immediately that God had directed his steps, that there are no accidents with God. I love what the rabbis used to say, coincidence is not a kosher word. Verse 28, So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring, and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me. Then he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels, and he provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you about my errand. And he said, Speak on. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant. And Eleazar goes on to talk about God's blessing on his master Abraham, the miraculous birth of Abraham's son Isaac, his journey to find a wife for his master's son, this sign that he proposed to God, 
And then finally, the way that God confirmed his will, which brings us down to verse 49. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left hand. In other words, will you or won't you give Rebekah to be married to Isaac? In essence, Eleazar is saying, God supernaturally guided me here. He arranged this miraculous meeting. He put it all together, but you've still got to decide. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit says to us. God will providentially lead us. He'll cross our paths. He'll confront us with opportunities. He'll put us into places of decision. But it's always up to us to choose whether we want to go with Him or whether we want to stay put. It always requires a choice on our part. Then Laban and Bethuel, they answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. In other words, how can we argue with God? Obviously, this is a, a work of God. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And you know, all the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner responds to the Holy Spirit's invitation to follow Jesus. Well, then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. Sounds like the man who wanted to follow Jesus, but he first needed to go and bury his father. You remember that story? And to that, the Spirit said the very same thing. Wait a minute, the offer is for now. The offer is for today, not tomorrow. As Paul put it, today is the day of salvation. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has pr prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Notice no hesitation in her. And so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Verse 61. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and departed. And notice she followed the comforter. Guys, this is the next step in the Christian life after you agree to marry Jesus. After you accept his proposal, here's the next step. You live the Christian life by following and riding with and trusting in the comforter, the Holy Spirit. You live in the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit. It says, now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahoy Roy, for he dwelt in the south. This is the first time we have seen Isaac now since chapter 22 of Genesis. And remember, there he was a sacrifice. Now we see him doing what? Coming out to meet his bride. Now notice this. We see him in chapter 22 as the sacrifice. We don't see him again. For chapter 23, for most of chapter 24. But the next time we see him in the scriptures, what is he doing? He is coming out to meet his bride. What a picture of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. A few days later, he ascended into heaven. And have we seen him since? No. The Holy Spirit, though, has been at work, drawing out for Jesus, the bride, the bride of Christ. But guess when we'll see him again? When Jesus comes back for his church, when he comes out to meet his bride and usher his bride into her bridal chambers. What a picture of Jesus. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were a coming. 
And if you're single, notice the lesson here. Isaac didn't go out combing the singles groups and the singles Bible studies and the singles bars and the eHarmony.com and all of those things looking for a bride. He chilled. He kicked back. He was meditating in a field. And guess what? The comforter, the Holy Spirit, brought him his bride. Rebecca shows up while Isaac is meditating in a field. And guys, if you're single, let me encourage you to chill out, to be patient, to trust God, and let the Holy Spirit bring your spouse to you. That's the best way to do it. Then Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And so she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And here is the second mention of the word love in all of the Bible. The first mention was in chapter 22. Abraham's love for Isaac or a father's love for his son. The second mention of love is a husband's love for his wife. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Chapter 25. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Now when Abraham bought the burial plot for Sarah, you remember what he said? Give me this property that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The implication was is it's time to move on. I've grieved Sarah enough. I'm going to get her out of my sight now. Not because I'm disrespectful toward her, but because she's more than a memory now. She is in heaven. She is with Jesus. She is living for the Lord. It's time for me now to move on. That's the best way that I can honor her memory is by realizing she's not a memory. Now, this is a proof right here that Abraham did what he said. After he buried Sarah, he moved on with his life. And here's the proof. He's not a grieving widower forever. He gets it together and he marries another wife and starts a second life. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Abraham had six sons after the age of 100. Once he had Isaac, the old boy got on a roll. Jokshan, he begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, a couple of the guys. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Verse 5 is important. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Notice, his only son Isaac was still his heir, even though he had all these children by Keturah. None of his other offspring diminished Isaac's inheritance. That's very important. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines. This must have been in addition to Keturah's kids, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. Verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now here is an inference to the afterlife. Notice Abraham didn't drift into oblivion. He didn't hang around and sort of hover over the living. He certainly didn't cease to exist. No, he was gathered to his people. He was still alive and he had a place to go. Apparently, the Old Testament believers had a place that they gathered after they left this world. The Bible even names that place after Abraham. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus talked about a place called Abraham's bosom. It was after Jesus completed salvation and paid the price for our sin. It's then that Jesus emptied Abraham's bosom and brought those people into the presence of God. And today, 
We no longer stop in Abraham's bosom. Today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the Bible tells us. And once we die and leave this world, we are gathered to a a place, but we're gathered to the throne room of God. We're gathered to heaven itself to be with Jesus. Verse 9, And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And more was buried that day than just Abraham. It seems that Isaac and Ishmael must have buried the hatchet. Isn't that interesting? They reconciled long enough to bury their father. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahoi Roy. It was by this well that God had appeared to Hagar earlier after she had been kicked out of Sarah's tent. And the name Beher Lohoi Roy means well of the living one who sees. You know, it's interesting that Abraham was always building altars, while Isaac, we'll find, majored on digging wells. Isaac left behind sources of water where others could be nourished. You see, Abraham worshipped, whereas Isaac watered. Abraham gave God praise. Isaac helped other people quench their thirst. And both men were remembered as men of faith. We need both attitudes, really. The upward look of worship and the outward look of witness. We need to both worship and water and share and become a source of refreshment to others. Verse 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's maidservant bore to Abraham, and these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. By their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, and there's Ishmael's sons for you, twelve sons in all. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. By their towns and their settlements, twelve princes, according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Notice God gave Rebekah a child when her husband Isaac prayed for her. Husbands, you are the priest in your home. And God wants you to be at the business of praying for your wife and for your children. Guys, we like being king of our castle, don't we? (laughs) But what about priest? We like pointing our finger and telling people what to do, ordering people around. We like being king. But can we drop to our knees and lift other people up in prayer? And be the priest of our home? Twice I've shared this verse with infertile couples. And I've challenged the husband to plead with God for his wife. And twice God has answered those husbands' prayers. You remember David Holloman? Big David Holloman? He was the result of one night his parents had come up to me and they were talking about they were having problems having a child. And I took Steve to this verse and I said, Steve, have you prayed? Have you pleaded with God for your wife to have a child? He said, I haven't. And so they walked off and a few weeks later he called me and he said, Sandy, I'm so excited. We're expecting a baby. Did you pray, Steve? Yeah, I prayed. Did some other things too, but I prayed. Men, let me encourage you. If your wife is going through a barren time, maybe not physically, but perhaps spiritually, 
Maybe she's unhappy. Maybe she's become discontent. It's just a barren time for her. Hey, you need to serve your wife by interceding for her in prayer. Be the priest in your home, not just the king of your castle. Verse 22. But the children struggled together within her. Now notice he says children. Rebecca had twins. Twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And apparently they didn't get along even in utero. Jewish legend says that the boys tried to kill each other even in their mother's womb. They were at each other's throats from the start. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? (laughs) Rebecca has noticed some prenatal complications. And so she puts in a call to her doctor, Dr. God. She asks him for a diagnosis. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from, one, from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, according to a custom, that never happened. The firstborn son had all of the rights in Oriental culture, but not in God's family. For here the older son Esau is said he will one day serve the younger son Jacob. And this was prophetic of the future of these two nations. Esau, the father of the Edomites, will be dominated for most of their history by Jacob's descendants, the Jews. Verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. I mean, little Esau looked like a bear cub. Hair all over him. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Jacob was born second. And he tried to take his older brother even as they were exiting the womb. He came out holding on to Esau's heel. And the word Jacob means heel catcher. That's what it means. Later, it came to be synonymous with a scoundrel or a crook or a con artist, a heel catcher. That's what it meant. And it became descriptive of Jacob's character, as we'll see. Verse 27, so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Esau was a rugged guy, a man's man. (laughs) As Arnold would say, Jacob was a girly man. (laughs) He was more cultured, more domesticated. Esau liked to hunt. He liked to fish. He liked to do manly stuff. Jacob liked to cook and sew and (laughs) cross-stitch. And here's what happened. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob. There's going to be some big problems in this family. They're playing favorites. The daddy loves Esau. The mama loves Jacob. Oh, boy. Isaac loved, apparently Isaac loved the taste of venison stew. And so he gravitated toward the wild man Esau. But the mild man Jacob, he became a mama's boy. He gravitated toward Rebekah. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field. And he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. So he's red and he's hairy. Apparently, Esau comes in. He's been hunting all day. He's famished. And he loved that reddish stew that Jacob had simmering in the crock pot. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, remember, this birthright, Isaac's inheritance, was more than just a toolbox. 
It was more than a few shares of stock. This isn't like an inheritance we think about. This birthright included the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It had been passed on to Isaac. And now, who would it go to? Would it go to Jacob? Would it go to Esau? Remember what was included in that covenant? Sod. Seed. Salvation. God promised Abraham a piece of land. He promised that his seed would be a great nation. And he promised that through that nation, the world would be blessed. Sod, seed, salvation. Special nation status to the end of the age is what's on the line here. And Esau traded it. Get this now. Esau traded the Abrahamic covenant for a bowl of Campbell's chunky lentil soup. Can you believe it? You see, this was Esau's downfall. The man was physically oriented rather than spiritually oriented. He would rather feed his belly than feed his soul on God's blessings. He would rather have temporal pleasure than to have eternal blessing. He was physically oriented rather than spiritually and eternally oriented. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Certainly this is a pitiful revelation into the soul of Esau. This is a superficial, this is a hollow man. Of course, Jacob doesn't fare much better from the episode. He's a heel catcher. He's deceptive. He's manipulative. He cons his brother out of a birthright. This might rank up there as the greatest swindle of all time. Jacob and all of his descendants forever received God's greatest blessing in exchange for a measly bowl of chili. It's amazing here. Remember though, Jacob didn't have to be this conniving. Back in verse 23, you remember, God promised Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. It was God's will for the, from the very beginning for Jacob to inherit the birthright. The problem here, though, is that he takes matters into his own hands. Guys, it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. Jacob was guilty of what the Bible calls walking in the flesh, taking matters into your own hands, trying to accomplish God's will your way in your time. And the works of the flesh always yield pain, trust me. And Jacob's actions here end up alienating Esau and creating a deep-seated hatred between these two men and eventually ripping this family apart. Jacob was a swindler. He was a thief. Deception was his middle name. But apparently, God saw, at least he saw in Jacob, a desire for spiritual things. And I think that's why God was attracted to Jacob. At least he wanted God's blessing. Esau didn't care about anybody's blessing. He could do it all himself. He was a man's man. Jacob had faith. Esau didn't. And apparently that was the deciding difference. And that's why God will later say in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It wasn't because Jacob was more honest or more moral than his brother. He was a heel catcher. But to the contrary, if ever there was a person who needed God's grace, it was Jacob. No, the blessing went to Jacob because he had faith and he trusted in God's grace. Once there was a woman who approached C.H. Spurgeon and she said, I cannot understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon responded by saying, Madam, that is not my difficulty. My trouble is trying to understand how he could love Jacob. <laughs> Chapter 26. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. 
And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God repeats the promise that he had made to Abraham, but now he passes it on to Isaac. And this is such a strategic passage. Understand, Islam teaches that the Abrahamic covenant was passed on to Ishmael. And thus the land belongs to the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael, not the Jews. But the Bible teaches over and over again that God confirms this covenant with Abraham and then with his son Isaac, not Ishmael. And ultimately to Isaac's descendant Jacob and then to Jacob's descendants, the twelve tribes of Israel or the Jews. Verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place, the Philistines, asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. Have we heard that before? She is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of this place kill me for Rebekah because she is beautiful to behold. We have heard this before. This is the philosophy that Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah, adopted whenever they traveled among the pagan nations. And now their son Isaac is following in their footsteps. Parents, Beware, the apple never falls far from the tree. It's been said, don't tell your child to follow in your footsteps until you make sure you've covered your tracks. You know, kids are prone to repeat the blunders of their parents. Here, Isaac does the same thing his daddy Abraham did. He marries a pretty girl. He gets scared, and then he tells lies to save his own skin and treats her in a very selfish way. Verse 8. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. They were smooching. Right out there in the courtyard, they were smooching and necking and kissing and all. And then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. A godly man is being rebuked by a pagan king. Isn't that amazing? And so Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. An executive order is issued that protects Isaac and Rebekah. God will protect you if you just trust Him. You don't have to lie. Verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. This isn't a blessing Isaac deserved. It comes on the heels of a colossal failure. I mean, he's just lied. He's just embarrassed himself in front of this Philistine king. But as with all God's blessings, Isaac is a recipient of grace. Guys, understand, God blesses Isaac not because he's worthy but because Isaac has faith. And God blesses you, not because you're worthy, but because you trust in His grace. That's why we're to walk by faith. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. I mean, God just kept pouring on the blessings, and God will pour the blessings on your life if you'll just have faith and trust Him. And so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Now remember their signature traits. Abraham built what? Altars. Isaac dug wells. Abraham dug wells that the Philistines had covered over. 
And now Isaac goes back and he unplugs those same wells, which really provides an interesting picture for us. You see, Satan, guys, is like the Philistines. And he wants nothing more than to plug up the sources of spiritual refreshment. He plugs up the sources of of those places where we go to meet with God. He, He buries the joys of prayer. He covers up the joy of worship. He takes this joy of Bible study and he buries it under mounds of tradition or neglect. And often it takes a second generation, a new generation, like an Isaac, to go back and to redig that well and to rediscover and reemphasize the significance of what was lost. Verse 19. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. And so he called the name of the well Esek because they quarreled with him. The word Esek means quarrel. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna or hostility. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And of course the word Rehoboth means spaciousness. Isaac finally finds some space, some rest, some peace. You know, Isaac's life is a good example to us. The world that we live in is full of obstacles. Guys, there's many detours. But understand, when one door shuts, look for another door to open. Hey, just dig another well. If you're having problems tonight, if a door's closed or been slammed in your face, dig another well. If you've been fired from a job, dig another well. Just keep moving on. Keep looking for that next door to open when one door closes. Keep digging wells and eventually you'll find your Rehoboth, your peace. Verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And again, God is transferring the Abrahamic covenant now to Isaac. And so he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. They settled there in Beersheba. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahusoth, one of his friends, and Philcol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And so he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And so he called it Sheba, which means oath. And therefore the name of the city is Beersheba, or the well of the oath, to this day. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, He took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. (laughs) It was another example of Esau's lack of desire for spiritual things. He went off and he married two pretty girls. They had a lot of money. They were real popular. Could show him a good time. But they didn't love the Lord. They were idolaters. They were Canaanites. You see, he had a taste for the things of the world, but he didn't have a desire for God. And that was Esau's downfall. He married wives that had no love for God. And apparently here we're told it broke his parents' heart. As it will break any parent's heart if their kids are attracted to a sweetheart, a 
wife, a fiancé who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't love the Lord. That'll break your parents' heart, guys. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Choose to date, choose to partner with and, and, and to love and to marry a fellow believer. I think that's the desire of every parent's heart for their kids. And there we have Genesis chapters 23 through 26. Didn't think I was going to make it all the way to the end of chapter 26 tonight, but we covered a lot of ground. Hey, this section right over here, once you guys raise your hand, you see this section right over here? This will be the place where we'll have questions and answers.